Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 39. A film Johnny. Charlie was like a wraith for the rest of that week at Grauman's, an automaton. He drifted through the performances, distracted, going through the motions, and Alf became quite concerned. We should never have gone into that bloody chinky shop, I heard him saying to Stan. It's tapped his head. On the Sunday, the boxcar rolled down to San Diego, which meant passing through Los Angeles once again. Shortly after we set off, I noticed Charlie was deep in conversation with Alf across the folding table in his makeshift office, and our long-suffering company manager was looking far from happy. I nudged Stan and pointed. The game's afoot, I said. Do you think? When we pulled into Los Angeles Station for a one-hour layover, everyone spilled out onto the platform to stretch their legs, some wandering off to look for a sandwich or a coffee, or something altogether stronger. Alf bustled past me, his face drawn with anxiety. Arthur, hold the fort, will you, and don't let the train leave without me. Why? What are you doing? I have to send a wire to the governor, he muttered, and hurried off to the Western Union office. Stan and I stood there watching him, and Stan suddenly grabbed my arm. There, look, he hissed. Further along the platform, stepping up into one of the Pullman carriages on our train, was a familiar figure. Big face, big hands, dirty straw hair, clumsy demeanour. It was Mac Sennett. An hour later, the stop in Los Angeles was almost up. Everyone bar myself and Stan was back in the boxcar, and there was still no sign of Alf. The guard was striding busily towards us, red and green flags in one hand, whistle in the other. "'Gentlemen, please, we're about to depart. Please take your seats,' he called. "'Um, one of our party is on his way. He'll be here any moment,' I said. "'I can't help that,' the guard said. "'If he's not here on time, we'll have to go without him.' "'But, look!' Stan said, suddenly, pointing at the wheels. "'Did you see that?' "'What was it, sir?' the guard said, whirling around. "'A child. I'm sure of it. Crawling on the tracks, right underneath the carriages. There! Again! Did you see?' He pointed urgently underneath the car a couple further forward from ours. "'Oh! Oh, my!' the guard said, a look of panic on his busybody face. He crammed the whistle in his mouth and blew a few sharp blasts. Then he scuttled off, waving his red flag above his head, while crouching to try and catch sight of this imaginary child beneath the train.' "'Nice,' I said. "'Should buy Alf a few minutes,' Stan smirked. "'And look, here comes the man himself.' Our company manager was indeed barrelling along the platform towards us, clutching a beige telegram in one fist and a large spotted handkerchief in the other. "'Everything all right, Alf?' I asked. "'No,' he panted. "'Everything is most definitely not all right. It's a bloody disaster. I just wired the governor and told him to offer the boy more money so he'd stay, but look!' He thrust the telegram at us and mopped his sweaty brow as we clambered aboard. "'No more money, stop. Chaplin trying it on, stop,' I read, and Stan's eyebrows shot up. "'Where on earth did he get such an idea from?' Alf gasped, exasperated. "'Where indeed?' Back aboard the boxcar once again, a further three-hour slog to San Diego lay ahead. 
Ordinarily, we might have tried to get involved in George Seaman's game of cards or try to borrow a copy of Variety to flick through, but on this occasion there was a rare old pantomime to keep us enthralled. At the far end of the seating compartment, Charlie and Alf were once again in earnest conference. It was plain to see that Alf was pleading with Charlie, and he finally handed the telegram over to Charlie, although he plainly didn't want to. Charlie snorted derisively and got to his feet. He offered Alf his hand, and the company manager shook it. Then our number one turned on his heel and left the boxcar without so much as a glance at anyone else, not us, not the card game, not anyone, heading for the forward part of the train. Alf sat back down, exasperated, and then slumped forward, laying his forehead on his forearms. Stan raised a quizzical eyebrow at me, but all we could do was wait and speculate. Charlie didn't rejoin us in the boxcar for the rest of the journey, and when we spilled out onto the platform at San Diego, he was nowhere to be seen. A couple of cars away, however, Max Sennett was clambering clumsily down the steps, and we contrived to waylay him. "'Hello there, Mac,' I said. "'Oh, hello, fellas,' he said with a big grin. "'Nice to see you again. Sorry I can't stay for the show. I, I gotta get back. Just had a bit of business to do with Charlie, you know.' "'Has he? I mean, is he?' He sure is. Got the contract right here. The big man patted his jacket pocket. Stan and I looked at one another, trying to contain our astonishment at this news, and Sennett seemed to interpret this in his own way. Say, listen, he said, hanging his head sorrowfully. I sure am sorry about this, and I know I did say I could take you boys on as well. Turns out that isn't going to be possible after all. I hope you understand. I think I do, I said. In fact... I understood perfectly that Charlie would have made it a condition of signing his contract that Stan and I would be frozen out. "'Don't worry about it, Mac,' Stan said. "'If I can put a word in for you with any of the other companies, like Biograph or Cosmos, I'll be happy to do it. Just let me know, all right?' "'We will,' I said. "'Well, I guess this is cheero,' he said, in a lamentable attempt at an English accent. "'I need to hop on the next train back to Los Angeles. Heck of a way to do business, eh?' Charlie confirmed the news himself later that evening in the tiny dressing room we were sharing at the San Diego Empress. "'It's $150 a week, rising to 175 in the second year,' he said smugly. "'Really? Whatever happened to that offer of 500 you told the Marx boys about?' "'Oh, that was just a mistake. I misspoke. No, it's 150 which is double what Carno's paying me, and actually more than he's paying Sydney, so it's a pretty good deal.' "'Well,' I said, putting on a worried frown, "'I hope you've done the right thing.' Eh? What do you mean? Turning your back on all the groundwork you've put in? Dropping out of vaudeville before you've really reached the top? It certainly is a courageous move, Stan chipped in. But I reckon I could do this movie racket for a year and come back to vaudeville as a huge name, Charlie said. Like? Who, exactly? The fact was that nobody had yet attempted to convert film notoriety into a return to stage comedy probably because those vaudevillians who had gone over to the Flickers were, as Charlie himself had pointed out when we visited Keystone, not exactly from the first rank. You might even say that none of them even had the name Charlie himself had acquired touring the Rocky Mountain Empresses for Sullivan and Considine, so making a success of moving pictures and then converting that into vaudeville bankability was not a path anyone had yet trodden. "'I can't think of anyone,' Stan said helpfully as Charlie went quiet. "'Oh, well,' I said with a smile, I'm sure you know what you're doing. I'm not, Stan murmured as Charlie wandered away, lost in thought. I think he's off his blinking rocker. That seemed to be that. 
but it turned out that the world of vaudeville had still one more card to play. A couple of weeks later, we were back in Colorado Springs, that small, flat town nestling in the shadow of Pike's Peak on the eastern edge of the Rockies. There were just two more weeks left of Charlie's Carno career, with the curtain due to come down just before Christmas in Kansas City, Missouri. Arriving at the theatre one afternoon, lost in thought, thanks to an astonishing snippet I'd just read in the newspaper, I found two large fellows lurking by the stage door. There was something familiar about them, and as I came alongside, I recognised the two man-mountains I'd last seen dragging their knuckles along the floor in the wake of Big Tim Sullivan, co-owner of the Sullivan and Considine circuit. What on earth were they doing so far from home? "'Hey, buddy,' one of these creatures said as I approached, shoving himself away from the wall and spitting a toothpick onto the floor. "'You Charlie Chaplin?' In a second I had it. These guys had come to persuade Charlie.' not to abandon Big Tim's vaudeville circuit. Presumably the New York gangster's paranoia hadn't abated any in the sanatorium where he had been incarcerated due to his tertiary syphilis. I couldn't let them work their knuckle-based magic on Chaplin. It was far too likely that they might succeed. It might mean taking a beating, but there was nothing for it. Yes, I said with a heavy sigh, I'm Chaplin. What can I do for you fellas? Without a word, the two of them grabbed me, an elbow each, and helped me around the corner into an alleyway. I don't think my feet touched the ground. "'Now see here,' one of them said, leaning on my windpipe with a massive forearm. "'It has come to our attention that you no longer wish to work for Mr. Sullivan. Is that right?' I looked into the slow eyes of this chap, who I seem to recall was named Brick, and tried to gulp past the blockage caused by his arm. "'True,' I admitted, well, Mr. Sullivan would like you to know that he don't take kindly to that notion, and he would like you to reconsider. I see, I gurgled, and he has asked me and my colleague here to make the necessary arguments on his behalf. Uh-huh, I replied. So, the first point he would like us to make is this. Wait. Brick paused, his huge ham of a fist suspended in midair, poised to smash into my breadbasket. He looked at me inquiringly and eased the pressure on my larynx a little so I could speak. "'A couple of things you should know,' I said, gulping down some welcome fresh air, or as fresh as it came, in an alleyway full of detritus, which I was very much afraid of joining unless I could talk fast. First of all, I changed my mind. I won't leave the vaudeville to go and make pictures. Why would I? It's a crazy notion. No, I will happily stay in Mr. Sullivan's employ, although technically employed by Mr. Fred Carno and only booked by Mr. Sullivan and Mr. Constantine. I'm babbling. I apologise.' You change your mind? I do, with all my heart. You are such persuasive fellows. Why would I ever go against your wishes? Oh. Brick and his sidekick frowned at one another, a little perplexed by this development. The other thing that you should know is that, and I'm very sorry indeed to be the one to tell you this, Big Tim Sullivan is dead. What? The two goons stared at me in disbelief. It's true. I was reading it in the paper just now. Here, read it for yourself. No, tell you what, why don't I read it for you? I managed to free my arm and bring the newspaper round in front of my face. Here it is, listen. U.S. Congressman and leading light of Tammany Hall, Timothy Sullivan, known to all as Big Tim, who has been suffering from ill health, has been found dead on railway tracks in the East Chester area of the Bronx, New York. Big Tim? Dead? I'm afraid so. Dead? I can't believe it. Brick turned to his pal. Maybe we should still beat this fella up, though. What do you think? His mate nodded somberly, taking off his hat. It's what Big Tim would have wanted. 
No, no, I put in quickly. What he wanted was for me to change my mind, wasn't it? That's right. And I've done that, so your mission, your very last mission, for your beloved boss, has been completed. I'm sure he's very pleased, wherever he is. Right. Brick stepped back from me, allowing me to massage my squashed throat a little, and then he straightened my jacket lapels and solicitously brushed some stray filth from my sleeve. We'll be on our way, then. Back to New York City, the other man mounted added. Pay our respects. Uh, yes, indeed, I said, bowing my head. Sad day. Sad, sad day. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chapter 40. His Parting Shot On Charlie's last night with the Carnos in Kansas City, Missouri, I was jubilant. I didn't want him to leave without knowing exactly how I felt, so I put together a little leaving present for him. I found an old tobacco tin left lying around and filled it with some old ends of makeup. I made sure to tear the paper off and try to shape the brown bits and bobs as much as possible into pellets of... Well, you know what it would have looked like... I squinted down at my handiwork and wasn't really satisfied, I have to say. It just looked like the gift of an oddball rather than a righteous avenger reaping the visceral satisfaction of finally outwitting a deadly rival. There was nothing for it. I would have to harvest samples of the real thing. Once that bit of business was taken care of, I mixed them in with the stubs of old makeup. It wasn't so much the collecting that was unpleasant, it was the shaping. But anyway, you don't want to know about that. Then... I wrapped the tin up in the fanciest foil paper I could find, finishing the whole thing off with a big pink ribbon. I found a card and appended an appropriate inscription. Then I tucked the whole surprise behind a mirror and went to wash my hands again. And again. The show, the last show, Charlie Chaplin's last ever show with the Fred Carno Comedy Company, was surprisingly emotional. Charlie was on the most tremendous form, even I had to admit that, and he would be a hard act to follow. I have spoken many times about the power, that mystical force that envelops you when you're on stage and everything is working perfectly. It is headier than the strongest drug, more intoxicating than the hardest spirit. Well, Charlie certainly had the power at his fingertips that last night, and the audience would have done anything for him. It suddenly struck me that this, 
this was what Charlie would be missing. Because you can't possibly achieve the same rapport with 2,000 people through a camera and a screen and with maybe several weeks of time interposed between the performance and the response. They may laugh at your antics on screen, they may howl with delirious abandon, but even if you're there in the room watching with them, you're not exercising the power, the control. There's a whole dimension missing to the experience as far as the comic is concerned. This, I saw now in a moment of piercing clarity, was why he clung to the Carno life with such tenacity, why he found it so hard to commit to Keystone. He told us it was bargaining. He may even have believed himself that he was playing Carno and sent it off against one another, but deep down it was the power he didn't want to relinquish, and I'd backed him into a place where he had to give it up. Maybe my revenge was more complete than I knew. That night, in Kansas City, Charlie achieved something I'd never seen before. I had seen the power exerted by some masters in my time on the halls and in vaudeville. George Roby was the first, but then also Fred Kitchen, the great Carnot number one, Little Titch at the Folie Bergère, Julius Marx positively oozed it from every pore, W.C. Fields wielded it as effortlessly as his banana-shaped pool cue. Stan Jefferson, too, that night in New York. I myself had felt it tingling at my fingertips like an electric charge. But what Charlie did that last time was this. He brought the power to bear full beam on that helpless audience, and then quite deliberately managed to spread it, to widen it, to exert it upon everyone on stage with him as well. Yes, we laughed along with everyone else, guiltily at first, unprofessionally, but then quite shamelessly enjoying the little man and his boundless skills. Of course, an audience loves it when actors lose it on stage. It just drives the mirth to a whole new level. By the time Charlie was taking his many curtain calls, with those vivid violet eyes glistening with tears, 2,000 people were literally holding their sides, not merely using the international language of pantomime to indicate their jollity, but genuinely fearing that they might laugh their insides out. I looked down into the aisles, and there were people there lying on their backs, kicking their legs in the air like stranded insects. What a night that was. Alf Reeves gathered us all in the green room at the end of the evening. As you know, he said, once he'd clambered up onto a chair, Charlie is leaving us. First I've heard of it, Charlie Griffith said. Where am I going? Sss, tittered Bert Williams, which set everyone off. Alf quelled the giggling with his two hands. As you know, Charlie Chaplin is leaving us for pastures new. I should just like to say what a pleasure it has been to be his company manager for the last... Good heavens, is it really three years? And I'm sure you'd like to join me in wishing Charlie the very best of British luck in his new venture in Los Angeles. Here, here, mumbled a few dutiful voices, and Albert Austin brushed away a tear, the sap. Now I thought we should really do this in style. Amy? Alf turned to the doorway, where right on cue his wife came in with an ice bucket in each arm and champagne bottles peeping out. So while I open these up, I'll hand you over to the man himself, Mr Charles Spencer Chaplin, to say his farewells. Alf jumped down from the chair, and slowly, thoughtfully, Charlie took his place. My friends, he began, and I must say I saw one or two quizzical expressions at that. I just want to thank you all for your support and your sterling work over the last many months. Without you, I should never have been able to... Pop! went the first bottle of champagne... Woo! went the crowd, which began inching towards the sound, reaching for glasses. Sorry, Charlie, Alf said. Go on, shush everybody. I was just saying, I wanted you all to know how much you all... mean. 
too. Then, to our utter astonishment, he was overcome. Cold, emotionless Charlie, aloof, distant Charlie, arrogant, unsentimental, unfriendly Charlie, burst into tears, jumped down, and fled. Ah, the lady sighed, but we were all frankly a little perplexed, since Charlie had spent most of our time together acting as though we were just ants that he could squash beneath his heel at any moment. Partly that was just his manner, of course, that strange mixture of arrogance and shyness, but partly it was what he really thought of us, and people can always tell. I looked around at them all, the company that would soon be mine. Stan would be a trusty number two, Charlie Griffith's another reliable pillar of support, Freddie Carno Jr. was coming into his own, maybe he could take over my parts once I was number one, I thought. Edgar Hurley I was not quite so comfortable with. He was not an easy fellow to like, and his wife, the lovely Wren, was sitting alone, I noticed, with her hair down shading her face again. Surely the brute hadn't hit her again, had he? Maybe I'd ask Alf to move him on. A shame, in a way, because she was a definite asset. I wondered whether any of them would really miss Charlie, or did they feel, as I did, that a great burden was about to be lifted from our collective shoulders, and a new egalitarian era of teamwork and enjoyment was about to begin? Certainly, in the immediate short term, a new era of drinking champagne was getting underway, and the mood was decidedly celebratory. After about half an hour, and with no one else particularly bothered about what had happened to him, I started to wonder where Charlie had got to. I didn't want him to slip away without giving him my present, not after all I'd put into it, so I left the impromptu party behind and set off to look for him. The theatre was dark and deserted, with all the other turns and the hands having left for the bar next door, and the audience long gone. I hadn't found him in any of the dressing rooms or in the wings, and I was just about to give it up as a bad job when I heard a sob. A sob somewhere in the darkness. I screwed my eyes up and squinted, and there, out on the apron, I thought I could see a small shadowy figure barely illuminated by the spill from the safety light. I stepped slowly onto the darkened stage towards the tiny form. "'Charlie?' I said. The figure half turned, and then I could make out that it was him, sitting on the front edge of the stage, dangling his legs into the orchestra pit. "'What are you doing?' "'Oh, Arthur, it's you. I'm sorry to leave the party. I just wanted a moment by myself.' I turned the tobacco tin in my fingers, feeling its unpleasant contents bumping gently against the sides as I did so. "'Well,' I began, "'I was just thinking of what I would miss leaving all this. It has been such a big part of my life. I thought then of all the things Charlie had done, done to me during the time we'd spent together, the rivalry that had come to define my life, the times he had done me down, sabotaged my chances, wrecked my romance with Tilly. I thought of whimsical Walker, callously hounded to his end, of Stan, for whom betrayal was the reward for friendship, because Charlie simply couldn't bear to live with someone every bit as funny as he was. Most of all, I thought of Tilly, dismissed, paid off, pregnant, alone, all to save his wretched, selfish self. Yes, if anyone deserved what was in this tin, it was him. Do you know what, Arthur, Charlie said then, breaking the contemplative silence we were both momentarily lost in? What, I said. I know we've had our differences over the years, but deep down I feel we are firm friends, don't you? That stopped me in my tracks. 
I was all fired up to let it all out, tell him what I really thought of him, had been thinking about him for so many months and years, to crow about manipulating him down the ludicrous cul-de-sac of moving pictures, reducing his precious career to so much pointless trash, and then to crown it all with my cruel, disgusting, and yet perfectly appropriate leaving gift. But do you know what? I couldn't do it. He seemed so vulnerable just then, and so genuine, so lacking in his usual haughtiness and smugness, and that awful superior sense of entitlement, that when he held his hand out to me, I took it, and felt myself beginning to choke up as I said, "'Good luck, old man. Thank you, Arthur, and to you too.' We shook hands, holding on longer than we normally would have, knowing this was the last time, perhaps, that we would see one another— But do you know, even though Charlie was in benign and misty-eyed mood, he couldn't resist unleashing one final little salvo at me. "'You could have been a number one, I suppose, Arthur,' he said. "'I dare say you will be now, now that I'm gone. But I don't think you have the range to be a big success. You're not a good enough character actor, is what I'm saying. You just play versions of yourself, that rage, that thwarted sense of injustice. It leaks out of all your characterizations. You can't lose yourself.' You always give yourself away. I ground my teeth and walked away, but as I reached the dark and dusty tabs, I turned back and said, Maybe you're right about me. Maybe I won't be as good a number one as you. On the other hand, maybe I will be. Then I suddenly switched to the rasping voice of a wizened old Chinese lady fortune teller. Big success! Big success! Charlie's eyebrows shot right to the top of his head. What? What did you say? Nothing. All the best, old chap. I walked off the stage to the sound of my own footsteps, and I wish I could say it was the only time that happened. There was a broad smile on my face as I imagined Charlie's brain whirring and ticking furiously like an overwound pocket watch. My own thoughts turned then to Tilly and little Arthur. I'd sent a wire up to Mike's place in Seattle, but a wire couldn't possibly convey all I was bursting to say, not with the amount of cash in my pockets anyway. That would have to wait until the new year. All I had sent was, Carno's returning in spring with new number one. The rest I left for her to read between those lines for now. Back downstairs in the dressing room, Stan was waiting for me, but everyone else had called it a night. Well, did you give him that nasty present, you revolting fellow? "'I couldn't do it,' I said. "'He was being too nice to me.' I tossed the parcel into the bin and threw the card down on the dressing-room table. Stan picked it up and read it, an involuntary snort of laughter bursting from his mouth and nose. "'Some shits for a shit,' he said. "'Is that really what you wrote?' I shrugged. "'Well, you know.' "'You just don't know how to win gracefully, do you?' Stan grinned. "'In fairness, I don't really have much experience,' I muttered. Stan poured out the last of the champagne into two glasses, held one out to me. "'Well, he's finally gone,' Stan said. "'Sick Semper Tyrannis,' I said. "'What does that mean?' "'Death to the simpering tyrant.' "'Ha! Who'd have thought that old Chinese fortune-teller would spook him so?' Stan chuckled. "'I know. Best twenty bucks I ever spent borrowing her clothes and her room for an hour. "'I felt sure he was on to me at one point, "'and it was all I could do not to own up to poor old Alf later on. "'He was so upset.' "'The key in the stone was a bit on the nose, I thought.' "'Maybe. But you trying to drag him away, that's what sold it. Thanks for your help.' "'Well, I owed you a good turn, didn't I?' Stan said. 
He had been feeling guilty about keeping the news of Tilly's pregnancy from me, and I'm afraid I rather took advantage of that by awarding him a key role in my little deception. Mind you, one day I would have to tell him my secret, that Max Sennett had been so impressed with him and not Charlie, and I didn't realise then quite what a big deal that would turn out to be. But that, as they say, is another story. It worked. That's the main thing, I said. He's out of our lives for good. I wonder if we'll ever see him again. Oh, I expect we'll see the odd keystone flicker over the next couple of years. You know, with Charlie stuck in the background complaining about the lack of a proper scenario and refusing to get involved in the chase. I might learn to lip-read just so I can enjoy that properly. Stan chortled, and we clinked our glasses together. Here's to 1914. Should be a good one. Indeed, I said. Onwards and upwards with the Carno Company, heading for the very pinnacle of American vaudeville, eh? That's the plan, Stan said. And finally, finally, I get to be number one. Cheers to that. I took a long draught of fizz, some of which crept down the wrong pipe. Wait, what? Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 